BA from Oxford University, Balliol I think, is mm -hmm. um, um, and an MA and a PhD from Princeton University. Um, Professor Gort has been uh, done lots of work in aesthetics and has been particularly uh, interested in relation to ethics. Um, he's been working more recently on the philosophy of creativity, um, and he's also um, uh, done a lot of work in the philosophy of film and film theory. He's author of Art, Emotion and Ethics, published by Oxford University Press in 2007, and A Philosophy of Cinematic Art, Cambridge University Press, 2010. He is president. Are you still president? I'm still president. You're still president. I said no. In the time we were waiting outside. I always up to things, you know. As far as we know, he's still president of the British Society of Aesthetics, um, editorial consultant to the British Journal of Aesthetics, um, and he's just coming to the end, am I right, of a Leverhulme, two-year Leverhulme major research fellowship, um, where um, he's been working on the philosophy of creativity. So I'd like to welcome uh, Barris Gore. Thanks so much, and thanks to Andrew for inviting me, and Jim as well. Very grateful. Um, I don't know how many of you read uh, the paper I sent. It would take me about an hour and a quarter and an hour and a half to read out, so I'm not going to read it out. I'm going to give uh, what I hope are selected highlights, but in some cases I'll have to wave my hands um, and try and do some about half an hour, somewhere there. So, the talk is Creativity, Culture and Tradition. Um, there's basically three positions that you could roughly describe on this issue. Um, incompatibilism, which and these are all first past, first past definitions, that a creative work cannot be a traditional one. We often oppose the term creative to traditional. Um, what I call permissive compatibilism, which is a creative work can be a traditional one. So in other words, creativity and tradition are compatible. And what I would call requirement compatibilism, that, which is a stronger form of permissive compatibilism, and that holds that not only can a creative work be traditional, but it must be a traditional one. There has to be a tradition for creativity to occur. And that position has been defended by Noah Carroll, for instance, in a paper on the philosophy of art. So that's the first set of issues I'm going to look at. And if you're going to talk about the relation of creativity to tradition, you have to obviously get a sense of the meaning of the terms. So first thing to do is tradition. And I'm very pleased to cite the Oxford English Dictionary in this context. Um, the OED gives um, a number of different senses. One, which I call the action sense, which is that creativity is the action of transmitting or handing down that phrase or fact of being handed down from one to another or from generation to generation. So that occurs in the phrase by tradition, for instance. It's something's handed down. Um, but there's another sense, uh, which I call the content sense, which is to that which is thus handed down, okay, the content that's handed down. And one sense of that, one type of that content sense is what the dictionary calls an immemorial usage, rather grandly. Um, in other words, nothing's changed. Um, now, simple opening remark, only if the content tradition is identical over time, if the content doesn't change, are tradition and creativity incompatible? 
Why? Because creativity, whatever else it requires, requires some degree of significant newness. And if, if a work is being exactly repeated again and again and again, then you don't actually have compatibility with creativity. So in the content sense of tradition, uh, in the particular sense in which it hasn't changed across the course of time, then tradition and creativity are incompatible. But in the action sense, that isn't the case, because it's entirely possible that in transmitting or handing down a work from one person to another, that there will be a small change at each step, and the work will end up, or a work, a type of work, will end up being very different across the course of time. Now let me just say a little bit more about that concept of handing down. The idea of handing down, the OED's term, um, also used by T.S. Eliot, by the way, in his piece Tradition and the Individual Talent, he defines tradition as handing down. First of all, it's a social concept. It's not a habit, okay? Handing down requires two people, one to hand and the other to actually receive. Um, a person might have um, regular habits, might go walking every day at the same time, but that wouldn't be a tradition if there's just one person. It would be a habit. Okay? Um, that handing down can be done in very different ways. One obvious way is teaching, where one person teaches another, say a traditional technique. But there are other ways to hand things down. The, um, the junior person might observe the the learned elder doing whatever the learned elder does, and that will also count as handing down. But also there's another possibility, sometimes called scaffolding. And um, the idea is embedded in a book by Kim Sterelny called uh, The Evolved Apprentice, and this is his apprentice learning model. And Sterelny speculates that a lot of um, tool use going back, tool use goes back at least three million years, um, was actually done not by direct teaching, but by, at least in some cases, um, the, um, the younger um, members of the tribe simply playing with what was left over f uh, from the serious work of the adults, say types of tool or flakes that were produced or materials that were used. And that also could count as a type of handing down. There's no observation. They're not seeing the adults chipping away at these stone axes to create good forms, rather the results of this process are ones that the um, young play with and learn about. So the idea of handing down ought to be understood very flexibly. And that also means, it follows from that last point, that you don't need to be aware of a tradition occurring for it to happen. Okay? Now, tradition in this sense of handing down involves a type of inheritance okay we're getting inheriting something from someone else but it's not genetic inheritance okay um, if, if a long nose is run in a family the family don't have long noses by tradition okay it's a family tradition we have long noses they just genetically inherited it so inheritance this sort of inheritance involves learning rather than um, just some genetic transmission and since it's a social concept, it involves social learning. So my claim is the idea of handing down or transmission is a kind of social learning. Okay. What about culture? Another thing in my title. Well, interestingly, still one of the most ultimately influential definitions of culture actually was given by in 1871. 
just read it out. It's from Edward B. Tyler. Um, Culture or civilization, taking in its wide ethnographic sense, is that complex whole which includes knowledge, belief, art, morals, law, custom, and other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. Note that acquired by man as a member of society. So for Tyler, culture involves a kind of social learning. You acquire it as a member of society. And that's been reflected in almost all subsequent anthropological definitions of culture. It's a set of ideas or values which are acquired by social learning. Now, just a note on that, Tyler's definition turns out to be too restrictive because culture isn't necessarily human, unless we just stipulate it should be. Um, it's, there's a lot of empirical evidence now that other animals, higher animals, actually have cultures. So, for instance, there was an um, article in 1999 written by Andrew Whiten, Jane Goodall, the famous Jane Goodall, and others, which actually uh, looked at seven different groups of chimpanzees in the wild in Africa and established of the, of the 65 behaviours they identified, that includes things like tool use, um, grooming and courtship behaviour, rather intriguingly, that of those 65 behaviours, 39 of them varied from one site to another. And there was no ecological explanation for it, that is, no explanation in terms of features of the environment. Likewise, it's quite clear that humpback whales actually have quite complicated um, uh, cultural entities like distinctive songs. We can actually show that um, these songs translate, uh, so these songs uh, change over the course of time, sometimes um, quite quickly, and they're distinctive to different cultural groups, and there's no, um, again, no ecological reason for it. So Tyler actually is too restrictive um, because other types of animals besides us can engage in social relations. But that doesn't invalidate the point that culture involves a kind of social relation, particularly kind of social learning. So we can actually plug this in to show the connection between culture and tradition, namely culture is what is transmitted by tradition. If there's a culture, there must be social learning, and social learning is sufficient for tradition if it occurs over time. And put it the other way, tradition is a transmission of culture by social learning. So that's how the culture and um, tradition relate. I'm going to understand creativity, just briefly, as at least requiring the following, that uh, a creative action should be saliently new, that is significantly new and valuable in some way. How to specify those in more detail is, is controversial, but the salient newness is the thing to focus on for these purposes. Now, I said that it actually is possible for um, cultural items to change over the course of tradition, and that's why tradition is compatible with creativity. Here are some examples, some replicated in the lab, some real-life examples. Game of Chinese Whispers. Anyone know these, this game? Okay. It's, the, it's also called Telephone in the States, apparently. Um, it's, when, it's kind of a party game, so you can try it out if you like, um, where one person makes up a story, whispers it in the ear of the person next to him or her, and then that person whispers it to the person next to them, and to next to them, next to them. It's a transmission chain. One item's being transmitted from one to the other. Almost invariably, the message gets changed over the course of the conversation, often hilariously so. Um, 
This sort of feature isn't just a party game, it actually has been replicated uh, by psychologists. There's a famous book by Sir Frederick Bartlett, 1932, called Remembering, and he tried this out, uh, this story, War of the Ghosts, which is a Native American story that's actually got a lot of elements that are not known to um, Western undergrads. He was testing out on Cambridge undergrads. And they had to retell the story from one to another. And again, the story changed radically. Basically, the unfamiliar elements were lost and, the, um, and it actually gradually transmuted to conform to their understanding. Um, another example where um, the all these attempts to exactly copy note, and there are changes despite all these attempts. Another example is the Abalam, who are a New Guinea tribe, who actually, the study was done, I think, the 1960s by Anthony Forge, and the Abalam were very insistent on their ancestral wood carvings being just like what was done in the past. It was very important to them to get the, the clan ancestors looking as they did, otherwise the clan ancestors would be presumably mortified at um, people getting um, their appearance wrong. Despite that, uh, Ford showed that some of the carvings done 100 years ago were radically different from those done by contemporary Avalon wood carvers. And the really interesting thing is, when confronted with what Forge thought were obvious differences, the woodcarver just frankly denied there was any significant difference at all. Why? Because it was really important to them that they were actually reproducing what was going on before. Fine example of uh, where the attempt to copy can actually introduce um, new changes, despite it uh, trying to avoid them, is um, many cases in Western art. Um, it's not infrequent for artists to understand other artists by trying to copy their works. Famous quote from John Berger, for the artist, drawing is discovery. It's a way of understanding how another painter does what he does. Here's an example, um, the Rape of Europa. Um, the one on the... Oh, not great in this life, never mind. The one on the left is by Titian, and the one on the right is the copy by Rubens. Um, you'll see in many ways he exactly is copying the uh, details. So you can probably see the, you know, the fingers of uh, Europa on Jupiter. Uh, that's a ball set up the same way. He's copied all sorts of things like you can't really see here, but the figures on the left on the shore and so on. Um, it's not quite an exact copy because he actually has changed the lighting conditions. In the Titian on the left, you actually get a very rosy sunset. This is much cooler, darker on the... Um, in the Rubens copy. But even given those changes, Rubens just couldn't stop himself changing some details. So as you can probably see just about, look at the ball's uh, foreleg and the way it goes into effectively the elbow. It's far more muscular, even given the lighting conditions in the Rubens on the right, rather than the, in the Titian. And that's because Rubens just couldn't stop himself, I think, from actually basically making everything muscular. He'd actually, he'd spent years copying Michelangelo and just loved these muscular nudes. So there's a sense in which even an artist as great as Rubens actually has certain routines he can't overcome. And so even the attempt exactly to copy something else actually will produce often something that is creative in the sense of its, uh, its new in some salient way. Okay, so you might object to this. Uh, here's an incompatibilist objection. Well, that may be true, 
at what you said, but there's still an incompatibility with the concept of tradition compared to culture. Um, and here's a rough schematic argument about how that might go, that to perform some activity by following tradition is to do so by learning it from another person. We've got that already. All learning from someone else is imitation. All imitation is uncreative. So to perform some activity by following tradition is uncreative. So in other words, it's a transmission relation, that of actually social learning, that's incompatible with actually producing something new. Now maybe Kant in the Critique of Judgment, that's Kant 2000, that's all about translations, actually 1789 I think. Um, but here's, a, it's always doubtful in my view what Kant actually meant, but at least there's one reasonable interpretation of what he meant in the Critique which actually um, supports the view that Kant was an incompatibilist. Just a little quote to give you a sense of that. Everyone agrees a genius is entirely opposed to the spirit of imitation. Learning is nothing but imitation. So he's opposing genius, which for him is a, a type of creativity, to imitation, and imitation is just learning. So maybe Kant thought something like that. Anyway, whatever what Kant thought, there's the argument. But it looks like premise three just fails, okay? Some imitative acts are creative. We've already seen examples of that, okay? Um, a talented uh, student trying to copy some picture may in fact produce a picture that is in some ways uh, more valuable or valuable in a different way from that which she is copying. Okay? It's entirely possible because it's very hard to avoid bringing in your own skills, talents, point of view. Um, that might well have been true with the Abalam and it's true, I think, of aspects of what Rubens did in Europa. He just got the muscly bits in no matter what. Another point is this, that even imitation isn't a matter of aiming to copy something exactly in most cases. It's standardly selective. There's a choice. And that selectivity is compatible with aiming to improve whatever you're actually learning about. Um, you can see that in a lab example and in another Rubens example. I'll go through them briefly. It's a delightful experiment, uh, set of experiments, again, you can just about see them, done by Caldwell and Millen in 2008, when they asked people to try use, uh, using a spaghetti rods with bits of spaghetti, modelling clay, and the task was to actually create as high a tower as you could, actually by putting bits of spaghetti together with modeling clay. And what they asked was that one person to do it, they had five minutes, then the next person actually was simply given the spaghetti tower and said, improve on that, okay? So the, you'll see two runs of this experiment. The top run, um, there are 10 goes altogether, hence one to 10. The top row actually has a type of towers that have a wide base as you may be able to see, right? The bottom run has a very narrow base. So the person actually started each of these traditions, mini traditions as it were, set some of the basic parameters for what happened next, okay? The wide base or the narrow base. But the subsequent people were able to improve on it on an, and on average, the towers did get higher, though some were slightly lower than others. So they actually managed to replicate, rather amazingly, two mini traditions in a lab where you get the transmission relation holding by virtue one person simply handing on the model without commenting on it. And that gives you a rather striking instance about how you can both learn from someone else 
uh, in a certain way, because they learnt a certain design, but then improved on it, and that's compatible with there being distinct traditions. Okay, there are two traditions there. So following a tradition through learning from something is quite compatible with being selective and learning uh, from the previous tradition. And another example of this, oh, these reproduce terribly in this light, but never mind, um, is Ruben's... Do you want to try that? Yeah. See if it improves things. Can you all still see? Mm, yep. Okay, right, that's slightly better. I spent about uh, quite a bit of time, these are both in the Prado of Madrid on my halls, looking at both. Um, they're actually next to each other in the main hall of the Prado. The one on the left is Titian, the one on the right is Rubens. And in this case, Rubens has definitely um, sought to actually alter, and I think did succeed in improving on the Titian, at least that's my view of it. Um, and you can know for sure he's deliberately doing it, because for instance, there are certain changes. Um, um, for instance, there's a parrot in um, <laughs> Simba Good in the uh, Rubens. Um, there's um, Adam's been turned around. Uh, he's uh, in his poise. He's looking at Eve's eyes rather than the apple as he is in the case of the Titian on the left. So there's Rubens, with a, and Rubens was just in love with Titian at this point, actually being fully engaged in a certain kind of copying, but consistently with this um, attempting to alter and to improve. Okay, so that's, um, that's just a sort of a demonstration about how creativity and um, tradition are compatible. There's a stronger view, I mentioned requirement compatibilism, which is that tradition is and must be an important ingredient in artistic creativity, to quote Carroll. So the thought on that is, it's not just tradition and creativity compatible, but you have, to be in a, you have to be in a certain tradition, in this case an artistic tradition, in order to be creative. Okay? There's no creativity outside tradition. That's Carroll's claim, and a similar um, uh, claim to be made by Larry Briskman in the case of science. Now, I won't go through all of Carroll's arguments, just give you two very briefly. Um, the first is what I call the learning argument, which is that artists must learn. Imitation is a key kind of learning, and artists learn by imitating items in the tradition. So artistic tradition is required for artistic creativity. The problem about that, if you re-accept it as a there must be a tradition, a strict mode of claim, is that artists can learn other uh, learn in other ways than simply by imitating items. They can learn by trial and error, for instance, like everyone else. Someone might actually just experiment on a certain technique and find out about it. There's another argument which I call the intelligibility argument, um, which Carol gives, in order to make sense, it must be an innovation relative to a familiar background, and that background, of course, is the artistic tradition. Whenever people say, of course, or surely, that's often a giveaway that it's a bit dodgy, as a claim in my view. Um, and the problem in this is that um, the background by which we might learn something does not always have to be by tradition. For instance, think about cases of radical translation, okay, where Carroll's claim is that to be intelligible, there must be a shared tradition. But in the case of radical translation, where we learn... So radical translation is where a translator can learn the language of a tribe where there's previously been no contact with that tribe. Okay? So there can't be a shared tradition, 
But that is possible, why? Because there are shared psychological dispositions to categorise objects in certain ways. So, and obviously I've been very quick with Caro here, um, it looks like that claim that, imit- that learning um, requires intelligibility, intelligibility requires a background of tradition, is again simply um, false if we're talking about a modal claim. Now, there's also another problem, which is a, a, a um, problem that arises in principle here, which is that um, the requirement compatibilist normally seems to believe something like number one on the uh, screen. Namely, the being creative in an activity, let's call it A, requires participating in, that is, following an A tradition. Okay? So, for instance, being creative in, in art requires participating in, that is, following an art tradition. That seems to be what um, Sidney Carroll means. The problem with that, actually, is it seems to me it's going to be false, necessarily, if you think that some traditions actually start, which presumably all traditions must do, since there's not an infinitely long tradition out there. The problem is the first item in the tradition. What we say about, for instance, the first painting. The first painting was created by virtue of founding the tradition of uh, painting, but it, it, was, it can't have been created by virtue of following a tradition of paintings. It didn't follow that tradition. It rather founded that tradition. So there's got to be, uh, there's got to be some weakening of that condition if some sort of requirement compatibilism is true. You might try and weaken it by saying being creative in some activity A requires participating in some tradition or other. Okay? Any tradition would do, really. And so you get around the problem about the first item in a tradition. There's always some other tradition. Now, actually, that strikes me that that may, uh, in fact, is true, I think. And it's true because we're cultural animals. Okay? We always have some culture or other. Um, we probably have a common ancestor with chimpanzees six to seven million years ago. Okay? We know that chimps have traditions. We have traditions of culture. seems quite likely that the common ancestor had both. So for any creative human act you can find, there will always have been some human tradition around because human traditions have been running as long as humanity. Um, That's true, important, but it doesn't capture the debate because Carroll, for instance, wants to say specifically creativity in art requires an art tradition. And if you think about it, that's going to have to be, uh, that sort of claim's got to be uh, made um, because otherwise the incompatibilist will be saying that creativity in painting is incompatible with tradition in some other area, say fishing, okay, and that would be a, just a crazy thing to believe. So it looks like we're targeting the same traditions rather than simply any tradition or other. So it's, the best I can do for the requirement compatibilist is to say, um, with version 3, that being creative in some activity A requires participation participation in the A tradition or in its precursor traditions. Okay? There's a, a tradition that was more basic than the particular tradition. So you might think this is a made-up story. Suppose that painting got going, and I mean, I mean by painting, depictive painting, where we can see things in the painting. Suppose painting got going because there was a prior tradition of daubing the body right, for ornamentation. Okay, and this daubing was purely abstract ornamentation. 
Then someone came along and said, oh, I can see things in certain of these daubings, figures or animals. And that person thereby invented the tradition of painting. So the precursor tradition would be the daubing tradition, body ornamentation, and the painting tradition would actually occur by virtue of features of the daubing tradition being incorporated into the painting tradition, namely the manip manipulation of pigments in a certain way. So the precursor tradition is one such as some of its features are transmitted to the A tradition, use of pigments, but it lacks some of the features essential to the A tradition, namely seeing in. And that claim has to be about what's psychologically possible for humans. Okay? Um, it can't be unrestricted because, for instance, God is regarded as the ultimately creative being in many traditions, but God wouldn't have been operating from a tradition because a tradition is a social notion and God was all alone when he got the world going, according to the traditional story. So it's a claim about psychological possibility, namely that we human beings can't invent new traditions unless there's some precursor tradition around. Okay? So there's, to be creative, there's always got to be in some activity there's always got to be a tradition in acti activity or a precursor tradition. Is that true or not? I think it's phenomenally hard to work out, actually, because there's so many parameters. What is it that could be humanly, psychologically possible? Hard to determine. But at least it seems, if you take this a strict claim, that there just has to be a tradition or a precursor tradition, it looks like there might be some plausible counterexamples for instance, I told the story about daubing being a precursor tradition to painting, but you could tell another story by which painting just got going because the person who invented body daubing at that very moment thought that he could see something in the daubings and thereby invented painting. So it didn't have to be, on that example, a precursor tradition of daubing, rather there was simply the invention of painting, which was simultaneously the invention of um, daubing. And there are various ways to resist that, but the crucial thing to remember is this, that not all learning is social. Okay? People can learn things individually, and that means there should in principle be possible to get a new tradition going without learning it from some uh, prior social condition. Pre that's precursor tradition. However, it does look that in very as if in very many modal cases the requirement compatibilist claim is plausible. Um, it would be pretty implausible to tell a story about the invention of painting where the first paintings all look like Titians. Okay? Why? Because you need you know, things like canvases and uh, pigments and brushes, all technology invented. Um, you need visual discoveries to do with perspective, about modelling forms through use of colours rather than lines and so on. It would be, it looks plausible to say, humanly impossible for one person to do all of those. Okay? And that's a, that's a general point about human culture. It's um, often called by um, people who work in the area cumulative cultural evolution. That is, most, and perhaps almost all of our cultural items we have depend on prior advances, okay? And that claim of actually drawing on prior advances does require there to be traditions. The Titian paintings can only... Uh, Titian was only possible as a painter because of a long prior tradition of painting and maybe um, other traditions as well. Um, but ever, whatever you think about the modal claim, 
um, the following seems to be true, at least, that all, or just let's be a bit careful, almost all creative acts that we're aware of, actual creative acts, involve some tradition or other. Okay? So even a child drawing with crayons, you might think it's the epitome of a, no, a non-incultured being just doing something creative. Actually, if you think about it, is in fact relying on a bunch of traditions, not just on the technology of crayons and all that involves, but also on the sort of traditions that encourage children to actually engage in art play rather than going around and screaming at each other, which they're just as likely to do. So, and the thought here is very simple, that actually there's a lot of cultural material around. We, cannot, um, we can't avoid, basically, a lot of traditions. So it seems to me highly likely that certainly in actual cases, we can say that all creative acts are going to involve a tradition or a precursor tradition, setting aside the modal case, which is harder. And for purposes of our criticism, it's really only the actual claim that matters. Because our critics are not interested in faraway possible worlds in which painting gets invented in strange ways. They're interested in what actually happened. So I don't think, in some ways, I don't think requirement compatibilism probably is actually true taken modally and strictly, but it's, it's as near as damn true as matters for all actual cases. And that matters for the art historian and critic. The last thing I want to talk about, shall I go on on this? Or do you want me to? Yeah, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. Five good. Or so. Yeah. Okay. I may take ten. It's just um, I think a bit long. I thought. Okay. Here's another question that arises from um, uh, from um, this question. What actually is relation of tradition to creativity? Then um, we said it's to do with social learning. One view is that actually that social learning is itself a kind of collaboration that the creative person um, collaborates with those of his or her predecessors in a tradition. And, the, and this is an aspect of a view I called pan-collaborationism, which I call the claim that all creative work is collaborative. And in particular, it follows from that, the relation of the creative person to her predecessors in the tradition is one of collaboration. Okay. And this is a view which, interestingly, Collingwood supported, even though hardly anyone discusses this aspect of his view. It's in The Principles of Art, um, chapter 14. And what he argues against there is what he calls aesthetic individualism, which conceives a man as if he were God, a self-contained and self-sufficient creative power. <clears throat> and in contrast, says Collingwood, the artist collaborates with um, her predecessors and also with the performers of her works and the audience. So there's no such thing as an individual creative act <coughs> according to Collingwood and in particular the relation of the artist to the tradition is one of collaborating with those who influence the artist. And there's a quote explicitly from Collingwood to support that claim. The artist's aesthetic activity, he says, is performed not only <coughs> by the man whom we individually call, individualistically call the artist, but partly by all the other artists of whom we speak as influencing him. Where well, we really mean collaborating with him. Influence is a matter of collaboration. So tradition is a matter of influence, and influence is a matter of collaboration. And then Collingwood gives examples like Shakespeare taking his plots from various other people and so on. 
That view has been more widely supported. There's something called the socio-cultural theory of creativity, one of the dominant views in the psychology of creativity. Kiesel is a prominent uh, supporter of that view. Um, quote from his book, Group Genius, the, the Creative Power of Collaboration. The lone genius is a myth. Instead, it's group genius that generates breakthrough innovation. <clears throat> Now, Sawyer's right that collaboration is much more widespread than is usually appreciated. That seems clear. Uh, certain arts, it seems to me, are almost always producing collaborative works. Cinema is a collaborative medium, so is theatre performance. And there's far more collaborations going in what we often think of as individualistic arts, like poetry or short stories. Um, Elliot Pound famously edited Elliot's The Wasteland and chopped out about half of the text, reworded some things. Gordon Lish turned out more recently done the same to Raymond Carver's short stories. Their minimalism was uh, partly the product of Lish. Um, so there's no doubt this point about collaboration is important, it's more widespread than it is often recognised. But the question is, is it universal? Is all creative work a work that happens through collaboration with predecessors or other people? Um, was Rubens collaborating with Titian, for instance, even though Titian had died the year before Rubens was born? Rubens did collaborate with some people. That's a fantastic picture, again, not wonderful on this screen, um, called The Garden of Eden with the Fall of Man. That's a collaboration between Rubens and Jan Bruegel, the elder, where Rubens did the figures of Adam and Eve, and the horse and the bit of the tree trunk between Adam and Eve, and Bruegel did everything else, including the under-sketching. There's no doubt that Bruegel and Rubens collaborated with each other because they shifted the painting between each other's studio in Antwerp in 1615. Um, but, in, but did Rubens collaborate with Titian as a pan-collaborationist? claims. Well, you have to get a bit clear about what counts as collaboration uh, for that, um, to, to assess that. Um, what's involved with collaboration? Well, I think two things. Uh, think, as a paradigm case, a jazz group producing a collaborative performance of some tune, say My Favourite Things by Rodgers and Hammerstein. To collaborate, to produce a collaborative performance, they seem to have to have a shared goal. They all say the goal is that we play My, uh, my Favourite Things, MFT. And also they've got to achieve that goal by a condition of mutual responsiveness. That is, each has got to stand ready to adjust his playing to the playing of the other in order to achieve the common goal. If you don't get the mutual responsiveness, you don't get um, collaboration. And to show this, think about the case where they all agree to play My Favourite Things, but then go off into their separate hotel rooms to each practice their parts, OK? What the practice would be uh, taking the means towards achieving the shared goal, because they're all practising for that performance. But they're clearly not engaged in a collaborative performance, because then none of them are aware of the other, nor responding to the other. Even if by some amazing chance their separate performances, when stitched together, made a really good uh, performance of my favourite things, it still wouldn't be collaborative. It would just be a bunch of individual performances that happen to cohere. So you need a mutual responsiveness condition as well as a shared goal condition. Each collaborative person has to be able to stand ready to adjust his or her actions in the light of other actions to achieve the shared goal. 
So one jazz player changes the key, the others follow on. One changes the rhythm, the others follow on. This can kind of break down in some cases, obviously, but the, that's a basic framework. And it follows from that that you can't, except under very strange conditions, collaborate with earlier participants in a tradition, because though you can respond to what they've done, they can't respond to what you've done, okay? In the normal case, because they're dead, okay? Um, so to take one simple example, um, if a trumpeter plays along to Coltrane's magnificent 1961 recording of, indeed, My Favourite Things, the trumpeter who's playing to the record is responding to what's played, but Coltra Coltrane's quartet can't re respond to the uh, trumpeter. So the mutual responsiveness condition breaks down. So I don't think um, that traditions are a matter of collaborations, if we understand collaboration that way. Rather, the role we have to traditions is we're inheritors of them. We actually inherit, as it were, the cultural capital of the past. And that cultural capital we can use in certain ways, that we, uh, we're free to use in certain ways that wouldn't be possible in practice if we were collaborators with predecessors in the tradition. Here's an example, Angra and his influence. Okay, comes out relatively well. That's Angra's uh, The Turkish Bath, about 1861. Very beautiful painting, very influential. Let's look at this influence very briefly. The next generation of painters drew on that in some cases in this way, okay? We're moving towards the uh, politely put the soft eroticism or, or less politely put the soft porn take on Angra. And on the left there's uh, Bougereau's, the birth of Venus, and on the right there's Cavanaugh's, the birth of Venus. They're clearly drawing on Angra's treatment of tonality. And you can say, okay, you can see how in principle, Angra, if he had been around and alive, could have collaborated with those guys. But actually, Angra's influence goes way beyond that. Um, he influenced this painting as well, Picasso's Demoiselle Davino, 1907. Picasso was looking intensively at Angra's Turkish bath in this period. We know this. He'd seen it in the 1905 exhibition, just two years before he did this. Um, and uh, you can even that, see that in some of the arms of the Demoiselle note, you know, the arms going up like that. You'll see that motif is there in the Angra as well. Okay. He's taking elements of that and also in a certain sense subverting it. But the Turkish bath influenced not just this painting, it also influenced that painting, the Bonheur de Vivre by Matisse, 1906, one year before the Demoiselle, and uh, again, we know that Matisse was drawing on, less surprisingly perhaps, the Angra. Um, and again, you can see some of the same motifs. What's interesting, that Picasso's painting, um, there's some evidence he intended it partly as a riposte to the Matisse painting. It was a kind of a criticism and send up. So two paintings were both influenced by Angra, but where one is intended as partly as a subversion of the other. Okay. So influence can actually spread in all sorts of surprising ways. Anger in ways that lead to incompatible, in certain sense, paintings. Anger's influence also went on to the abstract expressionists, and de Kooning said at one point that he wanted to paint like Anger and Soutine both at the same time. What you might imagine could that look like? Well, that's one answer. <laughs> Woman won. 1950 to 1952. That's what you get with Soutine with Angra. 
Now, simple point about this inference clearly, which Collingwood says is uh, what he's discussing, actually can take all sorts of surprising forms, going all sorts of different directions. So even if the artists, say Angra, were available to actually collaborate with later inheritors of the tradition, we can be pretty sure he wouldn't be inclined to do it, okay? Because we can be fairly sure that Angra would not be up to collaborating with um, Picasso or indeed de Kooning. Um, collaboration, according to my account of it, it's a partial analysis, but it's an account of it, requires shared goals and mutual responsiveness. And Angra is not going to be actually sharing goals with, say, de Kooning or Picasso, certainly. Seems plausible anyway. So the inheritor, what's going on in terms of um, tradition is we in, we're inheritors of culture, not collaborators with those who produced culture in the past. And that means we have a certain sort of freedom in how we react. That inheritor's freedom has uh, at least three sources. One is the extreme difficulty of copying, which I've drawn attention to. Even trying to exactly copy things is amazingly hard, and you produce differences that actually um, produce something new. But also, this is a point that Michael Baxendall made in his great book, Patterns of Intention, in 1985, and philosophers keep on ignoring it, which is an influence, which is a term that Baxendall calls the curse of art criticism, um, is actually at best a portmanteau term. What's going on in influence is better described as what the later artist does with the earlier artist. So here's just part of uh, Baxendall's list of what's going on in influence, namely the later artist may draw on, resort to, avail oneself of appropriate it goes on and on. Remodel, ape, emulate, travesty, parody, extract from, distort, attend to, resist, simplify, and so on. These are all possibilities for treating the art of the past in multiple ways. Multiple ways that actually couldn't have been anticipated sometimes by people in the past, and certainly some of those people would not be prepared to uh, collaborate if they still were alive in that way. Um, artists would be unlikely to collaborate if they were being distorted, resisted, or reconstituted, which sounds rather painful. And note the other point about this is that all of these are actions. Okay? They're all uses that the later artist makes of the earlier art. They're not just causal results of it. So the inheritance freedom depends on the fact that you can use art of which your uh, earlier art forms of which you're culturally inheriting in various ways. Okay, so here's the conclusion. Creativity and tradition are compatible. This, I think I've seen that in many ways. About requirement compatibilism, which philosophers have been exercised about, even if we formulate that to mean not just there's, um, there has to be a tradition but uh, or there has to be a precursor traditions, may not be true in all possible worlds, okay? That's the, um, the daubing example. But it seems to be very likely to be true in almost all cases. I've also argued that tradition isn't a kind of collaboration with past artists. We're inheritors of tradition, uh, so we can, can have a kind of creative freedom in respect to them that we wouldn't have if we were merely uh, collaborating with earlier artists. And just a final general point about method as well. A lot of what I've done is rested on examples outside art. Okay? Art's a cultural entity. And that means we can actually learn a lot about art by thinking about cultural entities in general 
things like the spaghetti experiment clearly didn't involve artworks. So thinking about art as a cultural entity can raise a whole bunch of interesting issues and bring in a lot of empirical evidence that you wouldn't get if you thought of art on its own. So it's an advantage to think about art in this wider context. And that's it. Thank you. Interesting, good, thanks, yeah. Um, as I said, and you're right, there's, a, I think, plausibly a value condition on, uh, on um, creativity. But, I mean, for this, um, uh, but I won't be looking narrowly at the, in this context, the relation of creativity to tradition. It's not, there are traditions in taste, but you'd actually have to run a separate, separate argument to argue that taste actually could only occur in a tradition, Okay. I mean, it's not obvious why that is the case, because taste is presumably uh, the ability to value something correctly. Okay? Um, and uh, you might better run a similar argument that taste requires some tradition or other. Okay? And if that were the case, then you would bring Kant back more to the, um, a compatibilist position. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you could run that argument, yes, I agree with you. Um, but that would be, I think, a separate argument, and I'm, I don't know whether that is in count. One thing that is in count, which I had to pass over for the sake of this talk, <coughs> is that he does actually say something which actually shows that, in a certain respect, there must be a tradition, which is he says, or at least it reports where he believes there is a tradition, um, which is that um, genius requires academic correctness as well. That is, um, that's knowledge of the techniques of um, poetic meter, poetic form, examples he gives, painting techniques and so on. Um, that, in that respect, I think Kant wouldn't um, certainly be an incompatibilist. He seems to think that you actually um, need those things um, to actually be a genius. Um, but so in that sense, he would have been some sort of uh, compatibilist. Mm-hmm. But in respect of genius of creativity, um, which is more than simply academic correctness, because you can be academically correct, but just very tediously boring, basically. Um, uh, in respect of creativity, it seems, again, well, it's always contentious for Kant, but it seems that, um, that he's fairly clear, at least, that, in fact, I'll give you the um, quote, just take it back to the McCann, one quote in it. 
Um, Gosh, it was a long way back. It was very early on. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, everyone agrees that genius is entirely opposed to the spirit of imitation. Learning is nothing but imitation. So what he says there is, and by genius he means what we call um, creativity at a high degree, is that the genius cannot actually um, ever imitate, in respect of his genius, others. Okay, He might imitate their... Um, academic techniques, okay, but in respect to what's original in him, he cannot imitate them because otherwise he wouldn't be a genius. Because to be a genius is to actually do something truly original. Of course, cancer counters in terms of the natural endowment of, uh, and natural really might mean actually uh, something different from what we mean by natural, but certainly means non-cultural. That um, that the genius is. Um, uh, someone who actually doesn't learn from others, rather he emulates others. And by that kind of means he's wakened to the spirit of his own originality. So in respect to the genius aspect of what he does, there can't be any imitation, because that would be inconsistent with him being genius. So I think it's in that respect he's incompatibilist. Even though in respect to one of the preconditions for genius, he is a compatibilist, namely um, uh, academic correctness. Not just that, the wings quit by change is not just academic correctness. Yeah. It's other people, there's not just the value thing, it is encounters the value thing, but it's also a proof of intelligibility. What's yeah. a, it's unintelligible because you and I say share basic psychological predispositions. Okay. Uh, that, that was the point of the radical translation case, okay. which went past quickly, yes. where, you know, if you remember, uh, Carol argued that... Um, well, I didn't fill out the full argument, cause it's, um, uh, but the idea for, uh, for Carol is that create, uh, creative work, in one sense, has to be intelligible, otherwise, precisely, it's original nonsense, in Kant's term, Kant's and the condi- condition of intelligibility is that it be located in a, in a common tradition, otherwise you couldn't understand that. But actually, as I said, that just seems to be false as a general claim, because uh, I can understand things, and uh, so I understand other people, for instance, who don't share a common tradition with me, because we may simply have psychological dispositions in common. We may all be disposed to categorise things in the same way, for instance. So, again, appealing to intelligibility, and I agree that's in Kant, doesn't give you the, uh, the requirement that there be a tradition. It merely gives you the requirement that there be some common basis, and that might not be based on social learning, it might be based on innate psychological dispositions. So if we think about it as a mode of claim, and the claim that it just has to be so, it you know, just looks too strong to actually to reach out to say that intelligibility, intelligibility shows there must be a tradition in art. So, so this relates a bit to what you said, yeah. one of the things you said about Kant. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that there is uh, maybe a subtler kind of mm-hmm. uh, incompatibilist yeah. position that yeah. you could have, yeah. and maybe it's one that you share, yeah. namely that uh, what is creative about a thing, or what makes it creative, yeah. perhaps, mm-hmm. can't be something that was handed down yeah. uh, from the tradition. Yeah. Um, not that a creative thing can't have elements that were handed mm-hmm. down. It's just that the elements that were handed down mm-hmm. are not yeah. what's creative yeah. about it or what makes it creative. Um, and 
So I, I was wondering what your view on that particular right, sure. version of it is. Sure, you might, yeah, that's not that dissimilar to the uh, thought that, which I said right at the beginning, about the, um, where was it? Yeah, the different senses of uh, tradition. Okay? Mm. Because um, if what is handed down, the, the content sense, okay, is going to be the same at each point, then that is inconsistent. Uh, tradition would be inconsistent with something being creative. Okay? But, um, and in fact, in the Eliot uh, tradition and the individual talent essay, he, he actually effectively makes that point. He says that, um, um, that mere repetition, if you mean by tradition, mere repetition, then you will indeed actually have incompatibility with creativity. But if you mean tradition in the sense of where there's a procedure of handing things down and that's consistent with change, okay, then you do get the compatibility. And I think you're right if you sort of really fine grain it, say, but yes, let's talk about that precise point, you know, no, perhaps, I don't know, not the parrot, but the exact arrangement of the fingers, okay, mm -hmm. on the, um, the um, Europa um, painting. You say, well, it's that bit I mean, you know, that was handed down from Titian to Ruben, so that bit can't be created because that bit was handed down by tradition. That's going to be correct, but that's only, I think, because you've actually taken the repetition condition to actually you know, break it down to elements of the artwork rather than um, the artwork as a whole. Mm -hmm. okay, so, we, so if we want to say, yeah, but those, paint, those fingers there weren't created because exactly those were copied, that's right. Okay? And that follows from the general point about repetition can't be created. So I think we're probably in agreement there, but you, know, the, the, you could go that way and say you're an incompatibilist in that respect. But in fact, it's just the aversion or, or an application of the earlier point that um, the content of a tradition, if identical, exactly identical, at uh, two points, then the latter point can't be creative. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to suggest that I, I support that. Yeah. I, and yeah. I, I raise it partly because uh, I wonder if even that much is true. Yeah. So, oh, so okay, I, I, I wonder, for example, if it might be creative uh, to copy uh, a tradition that you wouldn't expect some a person to copy right. at that stage. So yeah. maybe uh, a poetic form that was used in the Middle Ages right. okay. um, being used now. And you might think exactly what is creative about it yeah, is something that was handed down from a tradition. Uh, but because perhaps it wasn't an obvious thing to think of, in yeah. the context, yeah. uh, it's it's nevertheless creative. Yeah. I don't know what what would you think about well, that? That's a good that point. Case? Yeah, I think that's the point you're making. Your value of imagination. It is. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard this before. So. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, I guess I think that's right. I guess the question then is, what is the element that's being handed down? Because if you think the element is simply say that bit of the text, those exact words, okay. Uh, and that's a um, uh, copied, then um, if it really is in a radically new context, the text might be the same, but the meaning might be very different, okay? mm -hmm. or, or meaning of more broadly significance. So in that sense, you might think, well, this isn't really a case where something is being exactly repeated and therefore created. Rather, it's being recontextualized in this, in this new context. So... It's, uh, it's perhaps its meaning or certainly significance has shifted. 
So, so you might still defend the claim that exact repetition is incompatible with creativity because this turns out not to be exact repetition. It mm. might be only exact repetition of a, a say, text rather than the work part that actually the text um, um, realises. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, pro that's probably right. Um, I was just thinking of it as a counterexample to yeah. the claim that what is handed down yeah. can't be something that explains right. why it's creative right. or that makes it creative. Right. So right. I, here I was thinking maybe element is probably not the best word for yeah. this kind of case, but yeah. uh, the form, yeah. say that, that, that form of a poem yeah. is A handed down and B mm -hmm. uh, makes it creative. Right. Uh, there's going to be a story about why it makes it creative, yeah, sure. and that will happen. And that will mark a difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Um, no, I, th I think that's right. I, I don't think there's. I think we're in agreement on this point. Yeah. Actually, that uh, the the only question is whether or not it's properly regarded as repetitional because of the recontextualization. It is generally new. Mm -hmm. Although poems quote other poems the whole time, that's what I mean. Poems often do. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. As indeed the wasteland did famously, yeah. 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 but that is quite a good case where recontextualization actually really radically shifts the meaning. Okay, of these uh, of these embedded uh, parts. Um, there's a, there's a famous quotation, it's often attributed to um, Picasso, that um, you know that um, um, artists imitate. So uh, no, poor artists imitate great artists steal. Actually, Picasso almost certainly didn't say that, but Eliot did say that uh, mature uh, poets imitate, uh, so immature poets imitate mature poets steal, but actually <laughs> is in the sacred wood, I have the passage. And that is certainly true of The Wasteland, and that passage was written about two years before The Wasteland was published, because that does depend on recontextualizing all of that verse, okay? And then it does look plausible to claim that even though the text of the verse is the same, the, uh, the meaning and significance of it has uh, shifted. So the act of stealing is the act of effective recontextualization. One minute, I think Celine's been trying to get in and Go on, Celine. I was just wondering about the inscription of tradition in time, because you said tradition is um, the transmission of culture, the idea of repetition sometimes is change, but right. is that just when you transmit when you transmit something once, is that tradition? Or oh, how I see. Okay. <laughs> so it's just going back to basic Sure, language. yeah, sure, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's this guy. It's pretty clear that all these terms are going to actually be vague at, um, at first points, right? Um, uh, and you will get the writer's paradoxes of various uh, sorts going on. Um, I think there's probably... Uh, I tend to think of many concepts that they've actually got clear paradigm focal cases, and as you keep on uh, moving them towards the uh, borders, um, we just start losing our grip on what we think. So clearly if there's many uh, acts of social transmission as tradition, then surely fewer would actually um, be okay as well. Then would one suffice? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it almost looks like it's a matter of stipulation when we get to the borders. Uh, what's really important, just to get the central places fairly clear, and then it's going to be, it probably doesn't much matter about the borders, but the important thing is not to try and use the borders to create counterexamples for the central claims because it may often just show that we're just unsure intuitively about what to say when we get towards the borders of our concepts. So I, I kind of want to pass on that and just say uh, you can go either way, don't mind, but the, the central case is of this, um, if you like, multiple social transmission. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a literary person. Um, okay. um, one thing that's troubling listening to is we don't actually use the word 
tradition very much um, to talk about works of art in language. Um, and I just wanted to explore that for a little bit and see whether okay. that matters to your argument. So when Elliot wrote that essay, he's sort of saying, okay, rather than talking about you know, culture and individual talent as our old mighty dharma, rather than talking about genre and individual talent as theories might have done, let's yeah. see which the tradition instead. So that when, when we're doing our kind of describing and thinking about you know, poems and things, we use the word like genre, uh, use the word like influence, mm -hmm. um, use the word like form, mm -hmm. uh, first form. And I'm just thinking about how, how what it's so, the context an example like uh, Browning's My Last Duchess, that yeah. famous poem. And you can say, oh, okay, this, is, this, this kind of fits the Scenario in which what's great about the poem is various ways in which it's innovative. Yeah. And one thing you can say about it is well, it's innovative in the genre of lyric. Mm -hmm. And one thing you can say about it is it's innovative in the form of the drip of the couplet. Yeah. And uh, specify why that is. But I feel I feel a bit hesitant about saying it's innovative in in the tradition of anything. Um, and I and I'm I'm wondering why that is. Um, and I think part of it is the scenario that the kind of model that the word tradition sets up, which is precisely the model Elliot wants to bring in to the cultural sphere, which is of a kind of which is of a sequence. You know, mm -hmm. one thing being a temporal sequence, one thing being handed down to the next thing and so on. Um, and that becoming a continuity in which all the elements matter. So that, for instance, if I'm thinking about why I want to say Browning there is innovative in the form of the couplet rather than the tradition of the couplet, I want to say, well, he does, he does something that's a bit like what Keats say. He's got couplets and the, and the 